This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The process of the U.K. separating from the European Union took a bit of a dramatic swing in the last uh, couple of days with the uh, resignations announced of David Davis and Boris Johnson from their positions. They believe that the path that Prime Minister Theresa May is taking is wrong, especially noting that she still wants to have relatively close economic ties with European Union countries. So without Davis and Johnson, the prime minister has even gone as far as bracing the government for the prospect of no Brexit. With more on this, we are joined here in studio by Joao Gomes, who's a finance professor here at the Wharton School, Daniel Kellerman, a political science professor and chair in European Union politics at Rutgers University, and on the phone with us is Michelle Egan, professor in the School of International Service at American University and a global fellow at the Wilson Center. Joao, Dan, thank you both for coming in today. Thank you very much. Good morning, Dan. Thank you. Great to see you. Michelle, great to have you back with us on the phone. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. So I'll start with you, your, re- your uh, reaction to the resignations of, uh, of Mr. Davis and Mr. Johnson. Mine, Dan, it's been a long time coming. It's unprecedented for such defiance from ministers to go without being sacked, and Theresa May has not sacked any members of her cabinet. So the resignation letter comes in the aftermath of a cabinet meeting over the last weekend to hammer out the details of their negotiating position, and it seems to me that both of them will now go to the back benches, and neither of them put forward a deliverable plan or an alternative to her view on Brexit. Dan? Well, yeah, I'd echo what Michelle says, and I would just add that basically their departure, their resignation is just a, a reflection of fantasy or delusion uh, running up against reality, right? So uh, they it's not so much that they wanted a, a different vision of Brexit, right? As Michelle said, they didn't present a workable plan. They wanted a fantasy version yeah. of Brexit, which the EU would have never agreed to, which is kind of having all the benefits of single market access without the obligations, the have your cake and eat it option or unicorns or different things. Things people are calling it, uh, and May is now, you know, as the deadline's coming up, uh, starting to confront the real choices that are involved. Uh, although even the checkers agreement was a bit of uh, have your cake and eat it too, but even that was too much for them, right? So uh, when confronted with these realities, they prefer to quit and go to the back benches, where again they can kind of complain from the yeah. sidelines without presenting any workable plan. Joao, I think we all broadly agree. I think, uh, to quote Churchill, this is the end of the beginning of the Brexit process. Um, Now it comes to the reality of actually negotiating. The politics has to be set aside. Um, And I I don't think these Davids and and Johnson really wanted to be involved in that process because they realized that this is not going to be ending um, in any way close to what they were hoping uh, beyond, I think, any reason. Um, So it's the end of the beginning. We start the negotiations, which are still going to be really tough. Uh, I think May is still uh, not coming to grips with what the reality of negotiating with the EU is going to look like. I don't think this plan is anywhere near what the final uh, deal is going to look like. So we're getting ready for the serious part of this. Um, We'll see what it ends. But, Um, Michelle, it it sounds like uh, that uh, Theresa May is getting ready to, I guess, bring forth this vision uh, of what she expects it to be. I guess in the the next week or so, she's going to be releasing uh, a statement on that, correct? 
That's right. There's going to be a white paper released on Thursday. A lot of people have been naysayers already saying it's not workable, but she's certainly softened her position from what she set out in January 2017. Brexit means Brexit. There could be the prospect of a no deal is better than a bad deal. She's moved her goalposts, and that was most significantly on display at Chequers, the retreat, uh, the prime minister's retreat this weekend, which is where actually she will be hosting uh, President Trump. And so it really is a shift. And one also needs to know that today, uh, Michel Barnier was in uh, the Council of Foreign Relations. He was in New York. He'll be in D.C. tomorrow. And he made a statement that said 80 percent of the negotiations on Brexit have already been agreed to. So the 20 percent left, as you pointed out, are going to be the real hard, tough nuts to crack. Yeah. Yeah, well. I think one thing that's uh, useful for all the listeners is to keep in mind that while there's all the details, the sort of day-to-day politics of Brexit, we should keep in mind the the basic fundamental trade-offs, right, that the UK has to face. And the most basic of those trade-offs is a trade-off between having more uh, autonomy in policymaking, more capacity for the UK in the future to diverge in its regulations Mm -hmm. and policies, right, versus... uh, access to the EU's single market. Correct, so, right. it, you know, the, the more you want to maintain the access to the single market that you have now as the UK, the more you're going to have to follow EU rules. It's that simple, yeah. right? But what the Brexiteers always promised was this delusion that you could have just as much access to this, which is you know, the biggest economic market in the world, right? Maintain that access while not having to follow the regulations and rules of the EU single market, being able to diverge, being able to do your own trade deals, all these things. But that is the fundamental trade-off. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in with your comments or questions. Joined here in studio by Joao Gomes of the Wharton School, Daniel Kellerman of Rutgers University, and on the phone with Michelle Egan of American University. So I, I guess, Michelle, the, the question then becomes is, what are the next steps for Theresa May in this process? Because you want to be able to go forward with a level of negotiations. But I think a lot of people believe that at this point, having made the designation that you want to have the Brexit, uh, this idea of, you know, of financially and, and trade wise what it could be, it, it's just not a it's seemingly a possibility right now. And I think a lot of people in the UK feel like they may be even in a, in a tougher spot at this point. Well, the big issue is the this is a negotiation that the conservatives have been having within their own party. And they've been negotiating with themselves for so long that now as deadlines are looming, they really have to start, you know, thinking outwards. And this has been part of the problem. The next big crisis, if you want to call it that, is going to be the European Council meeting in October, where Theresa May will need to have a deal to take back to the British Parliament. The other issue is that most people were thinking in British politics, traditionally, when you have this number of resignations of ministers, whether there would be a leadership challenge. And that was part of the late night discussions yesterday in the UK about whether Theresa May would have a challenge from the Brexiteers, the hardliners, and whether she would survive. So, you know, the EU has to be looking at the internal turmoil as well within British domestic politics. 
So things are moving in Brussels. They're moving forward. They're putting together um, their negotiating strategy. But the British seem very much internally distracted. Joao, what do you think are the most important pieces that they need to consider right now in terms of if they are moving forward with this Brexit? What do they need to focus on now? Michelle mentioned 80 Mm percent done, 20 percent still to go. Obviously, some of the more tough issues that they have to deal with. Well, I I think Boris Johnson's resignation letter had a sentence that I think is actually um, appropriate, which is basically the the UK and Theresa May basically are waving the white flag already. I think they're conceding that we can't do anything uh, close to what was being discussed. I think the EU's hand is extremely strong. I think if you think of UK foreign policy in the last two years, it's been utterly inept. Um, Their bargaining power at this point is zero. Uh, the EU knows that. They have not been able to separate the EU in different blocks, which would be easy to do to get a French block, a Polish block, a German block. They have not been able to be singularly united. There is nothing the UK can do anymore. I think at this point, their only decision is no Brexit versus some cosmetic, you know, we can go through this whole process and negotiate a number of things and get some cosmetic agreement, but the EU is not going to budge. That just seems very clear at this point. They understand what happened on Friday. What happened now is the UK is waving the white flag. That's it. We want a minimal disruption. We do not have tolerance for pain. So the decision in my mind is, do we really want to go through with this? Um, Dan? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing you've heard in these uh, debates, uh, especially from the Brexiteer side, uh, some people repeating this mantra, no deal is better than a bad deal. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. And so that, in a, in a way, was, you know, their claim that if the EU doesn't give us the kind of market access we want, if they don't make concessions, uh, you know, to allow us to continue to have access to those parts mm-hmm. of the market we want, et cetera, then we'll just say no deal. And that'll hurt the EU, too. Right. Right. But. And yes, it would hurt the EU, but it would hurt the UK so much that I think it's not even credible. This whole idea that no deal is the reserve option or fallback, yeah. I find it um, totally non-plausible. For instance, in a, a strict reading of you know what no deal would mean, then quite literally planes could not fly from the UK to the EU if they didn't reach at least, let's say, a side deal, some kind of deal on aviation. Because yeah. the whole regulatory structure governing aviation safety, landing rights, all those things is governed by EU rules. You know, things like pharmaceuticals couldn't be sold into the EU. Um, the, uh, they, they couldn't get um, some of the things they need for cancer treatments uh, that are governed uh, you know, because they – well, I won't go into all the details of that. But you can go again and again through all these different sectors where a no-deal Brexit would be a disaster. Mm-hmm. So I don't think any UK government could really go ahead with that. And so as Joao says, you know, basically they're finally confronting reality that they're going to have to take um, – uh, a sort of Brexit, more or less, on the terms the EU is willing to offer if they don't want an economic disaster. Michelle? I absolutely agree. And I think that if you look at Boris Johnson's um, resignation letter, he talks about, you know, we're sending our vanguards into battle with white flags. So, in other words, the surrender uh, notion that has already been raised. I absolutely agree. It's at this point the softening of all of those. These are our red lines. These are what we will will and won't do. And that's been sort of a problem. And what's also a problem is public opinion. Public opinion hasn't shifted. People haven't sort of said, oh, no, we want to stay, we want to remain. Public opinion has almost solidified on both sides. And a lot of the polls indicate that 
people are looking at the negotiations and they're saying, you know, these negotiations are not progressing well and they are not uh, impressed with the way this government is negotiating on the behalf of the British public. And, and the uh, one question that obviously has been thrown out a few times is whether or not Theresa May will be able to make it through this entire process as prime minister. And, and I think a lot of people in the wake of what we've seen in the last 48 hours, Michelle, are wondering if that's not even a higher probability of happening at this point. Well, the meeting last night was what's mostly what we would call the backbench, the 1922 committee. And the two things to uh, understand, to get rid of a leader, to push out, there's a twofold process. You need a about 48 letters notifying the 1922 committee that you basically have a, a concern, it's a confidence vote, and Theresa May was very clear, if that happens, I will run again as leader. But what she's fully aware of is those Brexiteers, those people who want a hard Brexit, don't have the votes to remove her. And that's where the issue is. And the question, the concern that they would have then, if Theresa May goes, who will replace her? Who wants to take on the baggage of this negotiation process at this stage where Britain is really caving in to a lot of demands? Dan? Yeah, I think it's it's gotten harder uh, to get rid of prime ministers since they've passed this thing, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. And, and yeah, even if, I think as Michelle says, they might have the numbers uh, to call a confidence vote and to go through that whole process, but I don't <clears> think <throat> in the end they could replace her. It would be different if they had a more robust opposition, right? Yeah. But the Labor Party under Corbyn is not only weak, but also they're not really for um, a dramatically different approach to Brexit. Somewhat different, yes, but they don't want, for instance, to remain in the EU or, or to you know, call a, a second referendum to see if the people have changed their mind, anything like that. So you don't have a, a strong uh, opposition with a fundamentally different stance. Can you... I mean, they made the Article 50 designation. Can can you, as somebody that doesn't know this process, Ariel, can you pull that back and, and kind of poof like this never happened before? Well, there's been some debate among um, you lawyers about, about that question because it's never been done before, right, Article 50, yeah. so it's the first time. But most people... I think think yes, you could uh, you know announce that you want to uh, revoke, rescind Article Fifty. You don't want to leave, and probably most EU leaders, most member states would be happy to see the UK change its mind. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen, right? Right, mm -hmm. but it's not the law that is, uh, or the EU rules that are the impediment there. It's the politics, right? Dan Arjoie, no, I, I agree. I think regarding Theresa May, I think you know, she's holding the poison chalice at this point. Nobody's going to take it away from her unless they're really dumb. Um, so you just let her go through with it. And then at the end, uh, we'll see. At the end, we shall see. Um, so I, I think you know, the decision for the UK is, is just really at the end, do, are we sufficiently – and for Theresa May, are we sufficiently happy with what we have out of the Europeans? Or just pull out on the whole thing. And we just say, you know, this was just a bad idea. I find it really hard to happen. But being in Europe is a permanent negotiation. This is just a step. Something will be negotiated. I think it will be a very soft Brexit. Ten years from now, it will be a different world. We'll negotiate something else. But this is shaping up to be a really bad deal for the UK, for sure. But and more than anything, it's damaged the image of the UK in Europe. It's, it's right. really hard for people to appreciate. It's just damaged the image of the UK. It's, 
everybody in Europe looks at, looked up to the UK as sort of the arbiter, the, the, the one country you could trust when you had a grievance with France or Germany. It's over. It's just over, at least for the next for the foreseeable future. But in part, it's it's probably a good thing that, that David Davis resigned anyway, because from what I read, mm-hmm. he hadn't been really even attending the meetings to do the negotiations in the first place. So, I mean, he was I, kind of a shadow uh, participant to begin with. I, I agree. I, I think it is it is probably for the best because the UK needs to get serious about negotiating whatever is it to negotiate. Something needs to be agreed upon. Um, and and it's going you know there, there's serious issues about services there's, there's obviously the big issue about mobility of and and exactly what is going to mean mobility of, of people across in and out of the UK exactly what it's going to look like there might be the single one the single issue where Theresa May may want to focus on energies to at least look like she has a victory to the conservative voters do we have a little bit of control of our borders it, it I don't know. It, it, it depends a lot on what you can extract out of the European Union. Michelle, give us a sense of, of the, the two gentlemen that have replaced Davis and, and Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt and Dominic Rabb, as to kind of what they're walking into right now. Well, both of them have been within uh, Theresa May's cabinet. And I think we need to realize that when Theresa May came in, she completely restructured these portfolios. I mean, she created... Uh, one portfolio that was a new department for exiting the EU. We still had a foreign secretary, a foreign minister, and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And then we also had a department of international trade to negotiate trade agreements. So a lot of these things had come under one portfolio, and she disaggregated it. So you're going to have some disruption when you're creating all these new departments, agencies, and roles. And so the two new people, Jeremy Hunt was the former uh, person responsible for health care and health policy, which has gotten a very, very bad rep um, in the last uh, few years in Britain, the coveted National Health Service. So he's been at the forefront of a lot of criticisms over his role there. But he's a lot more circumspect than Boris Johnson. So don't expect the same diplomatic faux pas that we saw under Johnson. And Dominic Raab will be the new uh, head of the Department for Exiting the EU. The comment that's being raised around Whitehall now in, in government is that Theresa May has basically created a cabinet of Remainers, people who traditionally... Uh, or wanted a soft Brexit. So, you know, the pendulum is shifting. How difficult is it now? I mean, we're, we're what, less than a year away, 10 months or so, nine months or so from, from this actually playing out. How difficult is it to be able to even complete that last 20%, Michelle, at this point? Uh, um will be interesting to hear Barnier this week, and I hope he's asked what are the 20% remaining. I would imagine some of it is about the, the legal regulatory issues that Dan was talking about, and I would also say the, the largest issue is going to be Ireland, Northern Ireland, and the, the notion of um, border controls, market access, and the relationship with the Good Friday Agreement, the peace treaty signed over 20 years ago. Dan? Yeah, that's uh, really still unresolved. And it's ironic because throughout the Brexit referendum, while they were talking about lots of fantasies and different things, they were ignoring one very hard reality, which was this question of what it would all mean for the Irish border. And and I think Theresa May has, um, you know, I've uh, framed it and others have as a, a sort of trilemma. She promised three things of which you can only logically have two. Right. right. So she promised 
there would be no border uh, between uh, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, so they would not reinstall a border on the island of Ireland. They would not put any kind of border, so to speak, on the Irish Sea, so between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, right? So they wouldn't have customs checks at the ports or things like that, so no internal border. And she said they would leave the EU's single market and its customs union, right? But you can't do those three things because, you know, if you leave the single market, you have to have checks somewhere. So yeah. you either have the checks on, you know, goods moving across, et cetera, at the Irish border, or if you don't have it there to save the Good Friday Agreement and to not cause problems with Ireland, <laughs> then you have to have it when things come – you have a special zone for Northern Ireland and you have the checks when things come into Great Britain. So they still haven't confronted the fundamental choice. Again, that's yeah. the theme I see again and again. There's tough choices mm-hmm. – And everyone wants to avoid those. Thank you all for joining us today. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 